I want to start this podcast by saying hello and welcome to chapter, because that's what I've been saying all week. I'm in the middle of recording. It's nice to take a break and do the podcast. Hi, Richard. And I've been recording as well. I've been recording Docker in a very intense recording session, so exactly the same. But we're here for podcast number six. It is number six. I didn't think we'd get this far. No, it feels like a long time since we started, and yet it really hasn't been. They've been mm. roughly once every two weeks. Yeah, yeah, we're keeping up a good schedule. Indeed. Um, I think the, the discipline's important on that. But we're going to be talking all things Java again, and I think in this uh, packed session we'll be talking about WebSockets a little a bit. A little bit, on, I just want to touch on WebSockets. Bit of asynchronous servlets. So, yeah, well, that's what I've been working on, actually, Great. for the Java web developers. And we'll be doing some talk on reactive and reactive frameworks in Java. And a little bit on Docker, I would imagine. So it should be a packed podcast. Where do we start? Where do we start? Uh, should we go start with reactive? I think that's going to be the big topic for this one. Yeah, it's something we're being asked uh, a, a lot now. It's uh, it's one of those things that's been on our to-do list for a long time. It's been bubbling up the list, and I think it's finally reached the top now. Um, the thing that is probably a pressing concern is that Spring Framework 5 is... I, I, I genuinely don't know when it's going to be released. Uh, it was supposed to be March this year, but it's still at a milestone release. Um, but it, it's going to be out soon, and we can use it now. You can start playing with it now. Um, the the big feature in there is that it's it's going to include a reactive framework in at the core, and it's going to sit nicely alongside Spring MVC. The Spring MVC won't change, but the way that you would work in this reactive framework is very, very similar to how you work in Spring MVC, so a very easy progression. So if we've got any viewers who are who have never done any reactive and don't know what it's about, then we should be helping them. And I think the, the Spring Framework 5 support is going to be a nice, easy stepping stone into reactive. I'm really looking forward to that. Do, do you have a sense of how widely reactive programming as a concept is being used out there today? Well, I think before we do that, I think it's worth, I've, I've come around to the conclusion that it's worth distinguishing what I'm going to call architectural reactive from programming in a reactive way. Okay. So the spring support that's coming is going to be all about the programming. And I don't have any sense of how much of that is being used right now. There's certainly a lot of talk about it. But if we start with the architectural, uh, the architectural reactive, then I, as that's really hot, and and you know it's lots of people are doing that. So we've sort of come in at this quite cold, and we haven't even said what reactive is. No, so, good point. And, so. and and the the obvious starting point. Everybody always does this. Every talk on reactive will say, "Go to the reactive manifesto website," which I have in front of me right now. It's reactivemanifesto.org, and it is genuinely a very simple page. It's it's, you probably print it out on a sheet of A4 paper. So, so it's fairly simple to understand. And the reactive manifesto, it does sound very pompous, doesn't it? But it they're does. copying the Agile manifesto, that, you know, the thing that kick-started Agile. And, all this, and it, it's not about programming. It's not about any particular language or any, any technique, really. This is talking about how... Um, a system should operate when it's under stress, when it's under load. So there are, there are four cornerstones of a reactive system. Um, I'll go through them all, and I'm, I'm just reading off the site, so forgive me here. A reactive system should be responsive, so the system should respond in a timely manner if at all possible. So, you know, it's quite vague, but easy to understand. It should be resilient. So if a part of your system fails, then as best as possible, the rest of the system should continue. It should be elastic. So it should be able to respond to growing demand. And the, the only thing that kind of is... Uh, a specific technique or practice is the fourth, which is that a reactive system should be message-driven. 
which is interesting. That's kind of different to the other three in that this is a specific mechanism for achieving those goals. So when we've talked about this before, you know, ignoring the message driven for a moment, you know, we very much go along that view of, well, we do this sort of thing. Exactly. And people just do it, but didn't give it a name. Exactly. Yeah. So if you look at, um, so I'm, I'm going to talk specifically to our customers right now. If you've done our microservice deployment course, then you build a, a fleet management system. Now, of course, it's very simple and um, very cut down, obviously, so it fits into a course. But if you look at that, it, 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 it ticks all of those boxes. It's not actually a complete system, so there's some rough edges on it and some places where it needs improvement. But, for example, if you, if you kill off one of the instances, and you can pretty much kill any of the instances that that, that system has, and the system will still continue, possibly in a, in a degraded fashion. So if you, for example, drop a bomb on the queue, which is a, you know, the key component in the whole system, then sure, your vehicles are not going to be moving around on the screen anymore because we're not, you know, the updates are not going to be getting through, but the website doesn't just fall over in a great big heap with a HTTP 500, which would have happened if you'd have built that as a monolithic type application. And elastic, you can, you can achieve elastic by um, and, and we have talked about this on those courses, you would achieve that by using your infrastructure. If you're using something like Azure or AWS, then very easy to put in monitoring on those. So if a particular instance goes over a certain CPU limit, then you just fire up a new instance and the system will be able to handle the enhanced load. So, so, so we are, as are many of our customers today, building semi-reactive systems in the top as much as if we may not be necessarily doing the messaging thing all the time but the third the other three oh well messaging is yeah well, I mean we, we, we know how to do messaging we have courses on messaging and we've got it and we've got it built in it's built yes. into the um, into the fleetman system and it's it, I, I think the message driven is the only thing I'm, I'm a little bit I think they really mean more it's more event driven so, okay, right. Which is, you know, redu reduces coupling and, and all, all the rest of it. But, yeah, it's very simple to understand, and you're supposed to sign this manifesto so that you've got <laughs> a badge of pride. That um, Now, w what is not reactive, frankly, is our virtual pair programmer's website. Okay. Uh, I was, um, we, we promised we were releasing the Docker course in July. So, as usual, I translated that as any time up to midnight <laughs> on, on, uh, on the 31st of July. And is, is that midnight? Uh, so I tried to think what's the furthest. I put, uh, no, I, put on, I did put on the site midnight brackets UTC right. exclamation mark just to be clear. And then I realised, well, we're not on UTC, we're on UTC plus one. So I think it was actually an hour early. Just, oh, well, fantastic. Just, just in sight. It's a course of celebration. But the point of that is, I, I, in, in releasing the course, we, we, there were the, I exposed a bug on the site which took the whole site down for three or four minutes. So it's first you know knew of that, Matt. I'm very Thank sorry you for about me that. About that. <laughs> Didn't, it wasn't a total site failure. It it was just that you couldn't see any courses. Browse courses was giving HTTP 500, and there's a classic example. You know that shouldn't have happened. It was just one course had a piece of dodgy metadata inside it. It was poisoning a, a, an SQL query, mm. and the whole site tips over with a HTTP 500. It's a disgrace. And so we couldn't, what you can do if you are a reactive site is there's a little flash banner that you can download from the manifesto site and you can add it to the corner of your page, like a little ribbon. Uh, it's very cute. There's no way we could put that on the VPP site. But that's because it's a, a, a we, I'm sure we've mentioned it on previous podcasts, it's a work in progress that we're migrating across to a microservice architecture. And as things stand at the minute, we've kind of got the monolith still stuck still stood there doing its yes. job but all of the components for proper microservices are there they're just not activated yet yes so we're getting there and, and with any of these sorts of projects it's a big task and needs to be done in a thorough and diligent way with lots of testing <laughs> so it's never going to be a let's release it next week type yeah 
yeah. uh, attitude. With yeah, that. so we're moving there. So obviously we feel that pain and a lot of organisations are feeling that pain. A apropos of this, I, I, was, um, I was using one of the UK broadcast sites to w watch a TV programme the other night and in the middle of the programme their site went down. Um, I'm going, to, I'm going to say it wasn't the I, BBC iPlayer, it was one of the others. Right. So I'm not going to name them. Um, but their, their site went down with a, uh, a proxy error. So clearly they were hosting their site on a single instance and that single instance had gone down. And so the entire site was down for several hours. Incredible. And I really felt for them because they are a company who rely on advertising. They have lost a day's worth of revenue there, which was very, very painful. Mm. So they need to be looking at Reactive and signing up to this manifesto and, and working on their architecture, I think. So a lot of people are, gonna, are feeling this kind of pain. So, so that's sort of an overview then of the, the architecture and you know, for the companies out there who are just doing this and haven't given it a name, they've got the opportunity to go and download that little image then. But um, yeah. in, in terms of, so you said that's one element, the architecture, or the other mm -hmm. is the coding element. Yeah, so on the coding I think it's in particular the message driven side of things. Uh, you've got to implement that some, somehow, and we've done that at Virtual Pair Programmers for years, but there's an emerging, uh, there are emerging improvements on how you do this at the code level. And um, I'm just quickly reading, I thought on this message-driven um, block of text, I thought they mentioned the observer pattern. Um, but it doesn't, so I'm a bit disappointed about that. But it's basically what they were talking about. That we should be we should be thinking about events, and we should be designing our systems in a loosely coupled way, where instead of polling for things or doing blocking calls that might hold a thread or a network connection for several seconds at a time, which is inherently limiting your scalability because you only have a limited number of threads and connections. Instead of doing all that we use some kind of asynchronous um, way of communicating between services and message driven is one of them but there are other ways and um, the, we, we, we've always had for example the observer the observer pattern from classic gang of four Should, so just let's just talk about the observer pattern because I'm, I'm very conscious that you know, we, we right now don't have a course on, on design patterns. Yeah, disgrace. And a lot of programmers, and I'd include myself in this, for the, you know, for the very first probably good 10 years of my career developing, I was never thinking in terms of design patterns and researching them and understanding them. Mm. And so a lot of developers out there don't have that background knowledge. Would it be fair to say, at the, at the time, so the classic Gang of Four Design Patterns book was published in 95, I think and it was a massive sensation. At that time you'd have been working in the Microsoft.net arena. That's right, yes. And is it fair to say, I will probably get pilloried for this, that I'm, I'm, I'm sure .NET's riddled with patterns now, but at the time it seemed that they were working in their own bubble and were not so into... So I'm, I'm going to get my dates all wrong here, but I think .NET came out late 90s. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it was later been, than you know, that. Yeah. I, I started, I guess it now, working in Visual Basic. I love um, Visual Basic. I <laughs> absolutely I love Visual I still, Basic. I still use it if I'm doing the odd macro in Excel. I think it's great. I, I think... It, anyway, can I, di I yeah. want to digress for a second. I'm sorry for viewers who are only interested in Java, but uh, I loved Visual Basic. Uh, they've sidelined it, is it? No, no, in, so as I, well I haven't done anything with, um, in terms of .NET recently, but certainly the latest versions of Office still have Visual Basic for applications, as yeah. they called it, so you can write pretty much full applications in, in Office. And I, in fact, we, um, I support a little charity that um, has its account, sorry, it has a membership application system which I think is written in Pascal, don't have access to the code, yeah. um, and they can output data in a CSV file and they wanted to get that data into their Sage accounting package. Yeah. So I created for them a spreadsheet with a very nice little uh, VB, Visual Basic for Applications VBA tool in it that lets them import a CSV file, rewrites it into the oh, right format, heroic. but with some nice little UI screens, this kind of thing. Heroic. And it's, it's really quite pleasant. Um, I get the impression VB.net has sort of become well, a, a less prime. I mean, it's funny, so I was a Visual Basic developer when .NET came out, and 
at that point, everyone started gradually moving to C sharp. Yeah. And you know, I remember C sharp being described as its its VB semicolon, right? So yeah. Was, um, because obviously, from Microsoft's point of view, they were pushing this thing about this was the first framework for Microsoft developers in yeah. a big way. So this was about learn the framework. It doesn't matter what language you use. And uh -huh. if you created an application in Visual Basic.net or C Sharp.net, you'd get the same performance, right? This was the, yeah. the message they were pushing. And so people moved to C Sharp purely because it made you feel like a more professional developer. Right. Well, right? Image is everything, isn't it? It is. But I think Visual Basic.net is still out there, still being maintained. Yep. It's got a big following okay. still. Um, Terrible digression. I'm sorry yeah. about that. But I got the anyway. impression that, I, I mean, it, things, things like MVC seem to come to Microsoft a bit later. So I think it's fair that the design patterns were initially the preserve of C++ and Smalltalk right. and then Java took them on. And I may be completely wrong on that, but anyway, I digress. So that may be why you were you were using design patterns and probably didn't have the names of them. Yes, certainly you're right. MVC came a lot later for Microsoft mm -hmm. because, I mean, you could have implemented it if yeah. you were doing the old Microsoft But you'd have done it by hand. You'd have done it by hand. I went to a so. conference in, I think it must have been about 2009. It was one of those dev days from Stack Overflow, so Spolse and um, Jeff Atwood were there and it was really ch cheap day as well it was a good day but one of the talks was a really exciting talk on how to do MVC in in in, in Microsoft yeah. and I was like what this is yeah we've been doing this for years and they were genuinely excited about it I'm not having a pop I'm just trying to I'm, I'm trying to assess the time scales of, of it really so Anyway, yeah, so yeah, on to design patterns. It's a yeah, disgrace so we do not have a course on design patterns. No. And just this week we had um, a suggestion from a customer saying, where's your design patterns course? Yeah. Ouch! It's one yeah. of those gaps in the library that we, we will fill. We absolutely will fill. And it, it, but let's just, for the benefit of those listening who are not familiar, let's just sort of give a very brief overview of the Observer design The Observer, pattern. yes, was one of the gang of four classic so, patterns. So... Uh, my understanding of it, from what I recall, is that, that, very simply, that you've got an object which I think they call the subject, and another object which they call the observer. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, is that the observer should be able to register with the subject as, I'm observing you, mm -hmm. and then whenever something changes on the subject, it notifies the observer there has been a change. Mm -hmm. And a subject can have any number of observers. So. Yeah. It's a way of doing, I suppose, what we'd call callbacks, really. Yep, it's a way absolutely. of any object coming along saying, I'd like to register to be notified when there's a change, mm -hmm. and then when the change happens, a callback function will run. Perfect. So, so you're doing all of that without doing any polling, it's all... Yes, yeah. absolutely. So, um, in terms of its implementation in core Java... Ah, uh, yes. So, everyone always says, well, it's a very messy thing to unpleasant yeah. thing to do. And you don't see people u uh, using... So, yeah, it's in java.util, I think. It's been in there since Java 1.1, 1. 1. Yes. 1. or yeah, maybe even 1.0, I'm not sure. So, just in case people have used the classes and not quite realised it, the subject will be any object that extends, I'm pretty sure that's that way round, it yep. extends a class called observable. From the library. From the library. And we'll talk about this in a second, but and on the other side, the observer will need to implement an interface called mm -hmm. Observer. Yes. So, so their terminology <laughs> is a bit odd. But yeah, on the observer side, that's fine. You implement an interface. So that forces you to put a method in which is going to be the callback. That's going to trigger when something changes in the object that you're observing. So and, that's nice. And that method is called update and yeah, it takes like a that. couple of parameters, one of which is a reference to your, I'll call it a subject, that's yeah. four terms. So, so that's pretty straightforward yeah. on the observer side. On the subject side, the observable, yeah. so you're extending another class which in one sense makes sense because then that's giving you a lot of the functionality already. Yeah, so some functionality in the subject. Uh, for instance, the code to uh, allow an observer to register themselves. You need a yes. method for that, and that's tedious to write. 
it's quite basic, but it's tedious to write. So, 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 so although, so extending this class, you know, you have to call a method. I think it's called notify observers. So you decide, okay, something's changed here. I'm going to call this method, and our observers will get to know. Yeah. Which you know, for those who obviously nobody can see other than me, Richard is sniffing his face. Yeah, it's it's, it, 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 it's it's a it's a slightly messy implementation. And it was it was best. So that's exactly how it was laid out in the Gang of Four book. Um, but the Gang of Four book was written for C plus plus, and that's the kind of best job you could do at the time. But we're now years on, fifteen, how many, twenty, twenty two years on from that. Blimey! Uh, so we're a long way on from that now. And there's much better mechanisms for doing this kind of thing. And that's where we get into reactive programming frameworks which has passed us by a little bit. We've been a little bit slow at getting into this. So back in Java 8, we were just talking about this before the podcast, it was definitely remiss of us. We, we missed it, basically. Mm. We did a course on uh, Java, it is Java 8, isn't Well, we, we did, the advanced Java topics course covers some of the features of Java 8 yes. that weren't in Java Fundamentals. So we've got so lambdas in there yes. and we've got some threadings, not specific to Java 8, but we talk about threading. And we, we start from the very basics of threading, stuff you would never want to do manually yourself, but it's good to know. And then we build up to, to more sophisticated constructs. But the end point of that should have been to talk about the new constructs in Java 8, which was a completable future. Which, I mean, it's not entirely observer pattern, but it's very similar. So with a completable future, you can say, here's a task that I want to be done. And rather than starting a thread and having to have a running thread and then having to poll that thread and checking if it's finished or not, instead, I'll just start this work off and we'll get a notification, we'll get a call back when it's complete. Right. And it's not blocking, that's the key thing. You could do similar with a callable yes. from Java 5, and we had callable in our course, so it's, it's well worth watching that. If you've no idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> do watch it. But the problem with a callable is it is blocking, and you do have to poll it yes. to determine when it's finished. You call a get method on it, and that get method waits, and then when it gets its response back, it continues. So completable future was actually a big deal in Java 8, but it wasn't sort of heralded. It wasn't a, made a fuss of. And it's one of those things that has, that has become just a, a, a key tool in, in many developers' arsenals. And we missed it. So sorry about that. Our bad. So at some point we'll do a little video, I'm sure, on that. Um, well, it might be. So what, what I'm leading to with all this reactive stuff is we've got to have a reactive course. And this is going to be my next, oh, okay. definitely what I'm doing immediately after Docker's done. This is my, this is my work. Um, and so completable future could do, could do it for you. So you, 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 you could use completable futures instead of potentially messages. Uh, to achieve the reactive goal. Okay. So the easiest way to look at it is a microservice architecture. It doesn't have to be microservices, but that's a good way of thinking about it. So we have a microservice that needs to call another microservice on another instance. That's going to be a REST call. Yes. Up until now, we, we would have implemented that as a blocking call, a regular HTTP call, and that blocks. HTTP is blocking by yes. design. I know you're going to talk about asynchronous in a, in a short while. But um, yeah, that will block. If we, if we couldn't stand the... So a, that, a blocking call is bad, generally, because we're holding a network connection, we're holding a thread. Um, it might take a minute to complete, so the user's sat there with a spinning hourglass or whatever on the website. That's not reactive. It's not responsive. Um, so. If that had been a problem in the past, we would have gone, well, okay, we'll, we'll implement that as a message instead. We'll send a message to a queue, and you know, which is a bit complex. With a completable future, much better, you wrap the REST call into a future, in a, in a future task, and we'll just get notified when it's done. Right. So that's kind of where this is going. So I could do the job for you, but people have realized that, well, we kind of need more than that. So. There's been quite a gold rush of frameworks 
appearing that add to that and add features on top of that. And I must confess, I, I get completely lost when I look at all these frameworks. So there's RX Java, and there's um, a framework called Reactor, and Spring Framework are introducing their own constructs, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I get really confused by all of that. But it seems to be settling down, and parts of this are going to be implemented into Java 9 as standard. Um, and basically, the 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 improvements to completable future are that we'll have constructs that allow you to stream. So the problem with completable future is it just works on a single task. Here's a task, do it, tell me when it's done. With reactive streams, instead, you say to your microservice that you're calling, I want some data from you. Tell me when you've got some data and it will send me data as and when it becomes available. Right. So you really do see now this is much more like the observer pattern yes. and much more like a queue without needing a queue. It's yes. just just tell me when you've and you use web sockets underneath all of this so that you don't have connections open all the while. So all very nice um, but as I say there is a lots of different frameworks implementing this and there's yes. going to be there's going to be some um, some some consolidation of that. that that last thing you've just said there about not having connections open all the while is is for me fascinating because the stuff i'm working on is all about yeah. actually that managing your it's all tying together and, connections and everything comes together quite nicely hmm. um so it's nice in the way we're talking about this on the podcast because we just had this conversation yeah. and uh, yeah. never got to repeat it. So yeah, definitely. So the starting point will be. I think this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm going. I'm, I might do a. I think we should do more of this rather than doing these old single dancing course. And I've said this on previous podcasts. A half hour. Let's kick the tires of something. Let's get you started. A quick, hello world type thing. So, in Spring Five. They, the, the framework is called WebFlux, so this is the okay. framework that will sit alongside MVC. And it's lovely because you're a WebFlux controller looks just like an MVC controller. It's just they've added a couple of constructs on a mono and a flux. And all that is is a mono is a future, completable future style thing where it's going to return a value. So that's a, a traditional construct but you also have a flux, which is going to send you a stream of values, possibly a finite number of values. You're just expecting 10 or whatever, or they can be infinite. So we constantly get values from this. And it looks like they've done a very nice job of packaging it up. So that's gonna be the starting point. Okay, very good. I'm in, very, I'm in very <laughs> early stages, however, and I realise that I've been waffling a bit there, and I'm still feeling my way through it, to be honest, and it's, yeah. Interesting. I mean, I say, you, you feel like it's, it's my turn to waffle a bit then. <laughs> Good. Um, so I've been, and again, it does tie in actually quite nicely. So as, as I mentioned before, I'm currently working on the new Java web development course to replace our existing one. Yeah. And... Um, as a bit of a teaser, because it does tie in quite nicely, I'm currently working on uh, the, the chapters that are going to cover asynchronous web services and web sockets. Mm -hmm. And it's just as a sort of a little lead up to that. Um, when, and I don't know how much people will be aware of this, and this is going to be on the course as well, but when the web first started, so HTTP 1.0, if you try to achieve a web page under that, each connection between the browser and the server could do one thing only. So the process would be, browser connects to server, gets the HTML for the web page, disconnects, mm -hmm. looks at the HTML and says, okay, there's a CSS file, makes a connection, gets the CSS yeah. file, disconnects. And it has to do that for each of the images, any JavaScript files, so there were lots of connections being opened and closed. Yes. HTTP 1.1 comes along and says, well, we'll allow you to open a connection and make multiple requests and get data back for each one. Yep. One of the things that allowed to happen is something that's called Comet. So Comet is a web sorry, sorry, start again. Comet is the web specification that says that you can, because you can keep a connection open for longer, you can rather than doing this request response request response, do a request multiple responses, mm -hmm. and there could be a pause between each of those responses. Yes. And the common specification says there are two ways to implement this. 
One of them is called long poling, mm -hmm. and that is, if anyone out there is familiar with Ajax, and we're talking about Ajax on the course, um, that is where you the, the client requests a response from the server and waits for however long, you know, and you, you can put a timeout on it, but effectively waits until the server responds. Mm -hmm. And when the server responds, it then sends the next request. So right. you're sending one request at a time, but those requests, uh, there's always a request outstanding. Right, that's the idea. I see, right. So that's method one. And that absolutely you can do in Java. It's not too difficult. So those, those subsequently re requests are, are, are modeling and acknowledgement. I got that data, now I want the next. Uh, there's no there's no actual acknowledgement. So what happens is that um, the the server is sending data whenever it gets it yeah. uh, because there's this request outstanding. I, yeah. I, I don't want to talk in too much detail about how it works, but it uses this this thing called asynchronous servlets. Yeah. And the issue here, which is why it's relevant to you, is that if your client has opened a connection on the server, when you're using a web server such as uh, Tomcat, the each time the client opens a connection, it uses a thread, and yep. there's a pool of these threads. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that you need asynchronous servlets is that that pool of threads is going to get exhausted. Yes. It's going to block, and it means no further clients can connect. Yeah. So all asynchronous servlets is really doing is, is allowing your uh, connection between the browser and the, and the server to stay open yep. on a thread outside of Tomcat's thread pool. It's right. giving it a thread that sits elsewhere. So you still need one thread per connection yes. with asynchronous servlet. So this is not a, for most cases, scalable solution where you'd have thousands of clients. I mean, sure. I'm using as an example that the case study is a restaurant. So customers can come along and place orders for collection later at this restaurant. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, maybe the kitchen, which is going to have a screen showing all the incoming orders, that could work because you've got mm -hmm. one of these long pole yeah, right. connections okay, yeah. rather than all of your customers. So yeah. it's got limited use, but it has got use. Well, I, I first came across this uh, in a company who were doing monitoring of freezers. So this was for warehouses um, holding stock, frozen stock of course, and they have thermometers on them and if the thermometers start going up they need to raise an alarm and it would literally alarm somebody and they'd have to go in and switch the freezers back on or something. And they wanted to use this for that purpose. And that sounds to me perfect. I didn't really understand it at the time. And I thought, this can't be right. This isn't scalable. You're holding a connection open. But for them, they're not dealing with thousands of users no, hitting a, a website. It's a known bounded problem. And, and interestingly, so, I mean, the, the, I mentioned this. The reason to use this rather than just standard Ajax is the instant, it, is you get a quicker response. Mm -hmm. So if in those time critical situations, mm. um, the, the response comes through straight away. With Ajax, you're polling, so you're maybe checking, has there been an update every five seconds? That Got kind you. Of thing. Yes. So yes. Um, uh, the other quite often quoted use case for this is chat type thing. So you, yeah. you know what it's like, you're on a website, one of those pop-up boxes comes up saying, can we help you, one oh. of our agents is available. Yeah. And then again, it works because if you say yes, what happens generally is you're put into a queue. They have 20 agents, mm -hmm. so they're only actually ever going to have 20 of these connections yeah. open. So it is manageable in that respect. Promise me this is never going to happen on the virtual pair program. Well, so if it does, you're going to be the agent at the other end. Uh, It'll never yeah, anyway. My resignation letter will hit the table <laughs> before you've even completed the sentence that we're adding that to the website. So, so we won't be doing that. But ju just... I'll just finish the story. So Sorry. No, it's all right. <laughs> I know our marketing it. people listen to this podcast, so just, <laughs> this is my best channel of communication to them, telling them that's a, that's a red line. Okay. Uh, we force our marketing people, by the way, if anyone's <laughs> wondering to listen to this. It's, it's part of their job description. So, the, so, so there's one way of doing it is this long polling, and that's a straightforward. And then there's a second way, which is called streaming. And okay. this is the idea of rather than it, you poll and when you get a response, you send another poll. This is a, let's genuinely keep a connection open and every time there's an update, we send it down. Yeah. Now, as far as I'm aware, and I'm sure somebody out there has done this in Java, yeah. nobody's done it in Java. Well, WebSockets has blown that out the water. Exactly. So right. WebSockets has come along, it's a replacement, and that's where, that's how, if you really wanted to do it that way, that's how you do it. And you're covering WebSockets on the course? I certainly am planning Fantastic. to, yes. So, just as a very brief, 
WebSocket is not a, it, it uses TCP as the connection mm -hmm. base, so it's actually not about the web, uh, despite it being called WebSockets, um, but it's uh, it's actually where you, you hold a connection open between the cl client and the server, but it's not using the HTTP protocols. So mm -hmm. that has replaced the streaming, and I, I think it's really that it's so hard to do the streaming before WebSockets came along. And, but the reason I wanted to talk about all of this is here's where my issue is. So. Java 9 is allegedly being released on the 21st of September, which ah. is around about eight weeks from now. Well, it's good to have a date. That it, it's that we're definitely not going to have Java Absolutely. 9. <laughs> but one of the things that should be in Java 9, and I confess I am talking here without a huge amount of detailed knowledge, because I haven't looked at this, is there is a new HTTP client API, I think it's called, which okay. one of the things it does is makes it easier to establish the WebSocket connection. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I am currently in the process of doing, meaning I'm about to start, is actually looking at that because I need to make a decision. Do we cover that in the course mm -hmm. over as well as the existing way in the Java 8 way, if you like, of connecting with WebSockets? Mm -hmm. Or is it going to be so much better we actually say, look, Here's this chapter on it, and you know if you're doing the course on the date it's released, this this is you might need Java 9 as a release candidate mm -hmm. or whatever. I'm currently looking at that mm. to see how much of an improvement it is, um, mm. because it is one of those things that has been. It's one of those little. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Java 9. And this is one of those ones that actually could be yeah. genuinely quite useful. Yeah. Um, there's other things it does as well as this WebSockets bit, but they've particularly mentioned that's one of the reasons right. uh, they've been working on this. And it's a replacement for an existing API, um, which I'm, I'm going to get this wrong now. It's called something like HTTP URL client or something like that. Oh, yeah. It, it's, so it's a replacement for that because that is pretty old and outdated Brilliant. and doesn't meet a lot of the current That needed replacing. Yeah. You're right, it's going to be these sorts of things that make Java 9, you know, we're all lost on this jigsaw nonsense and it's... Yes, that's the, well that's the kind of feature which would actually drive me to say, right, we need to be using Java 9 yes. for this project. Oh yes. Um, that said, of course, um, I'm doing the Java web development course 90% of that course is going to be, here's how it works in underlying core Java before you start looking at a framework. Yeah. What I, I don't know of is how you do things like WebSockets in Spring. I'm oh, sure. superb. So we, um, on the, that brings on to, are you finished yeah, with? Yeah, Brings on to the that Docker was release. Done, I that you, was you'd mentioned this, so beautifully done, yes. Yeah, so we've <laughs> just released module one of Docker. It is a basic course, and, and I was promising to do that anyway. Uh, I think a lot of people might be a bit disappointed with how far it goes, because it does kind of stop at an exciting point, but I'm very pleased with it actually. There are a lot of tutorials there. You can go to the Docker, is it docker.com or docker.org, I can't remember. You can go there and get a reasonable tutorial, so we had to do something different. And I, I, I only realised after I finished it really that yeah, if you're a Java developer, this is the best way into Docker because it's just Java, Java, Java all the way through. We don't mess about with Cassandra containers and all that sort of thing that others do. And I'm, I am, I'm very happy with it. It's an, I, the very early chapter on the course, before we've even learnt Docker, I get you to run a container. Um, so we haven't even really learned any Docker commands yet, and it's just one short command line. And we're talking about a user's computer that's completely clean. They've had to install Docker, which is very painful. You've installed Docker, you're on one command line, and a full application is downloaded um, in a single command, and it runs, it's, it happens to be a Tomcat-based application just to keep consistency with other courses and it is part of the Fleetman application. It's not the complete microservice architecture, but it's the front end front of it. And I think that demonstrates really well how easy, what Docker does for you is that you don't have to fiddle around with environment variables, installing a database and doing all this stuff. It just cleans all of that up. But the point I'm rambling towards is I've upgraded the uh, front end of Fleetman to be more reactive. The, the problem with the old version in the previous course was you had to press Control R 
to refresh your browser to get the new positions of the vehicles. So control R, control R. So they weren't animated, basically. And I, well, I don't like that. So I spent quite some time upgrading it to use WebSockets. So I'm using Spring's support for WebSockets. So now the position data is being streamed to the browser and they're automatically updated in real time. So it's, that's really nice. And I know almost nothing about WebSockets. So I'm looking forward to your course. But Spring support, as, all, as always in Spring Boot, and I'm sounding like a fanboy, but they've done a lovely job in keeping it as simple as possible without making it useless. Yes. Um, really, really joyful thing to do. Now, what I haven't done at any point is explained how that works. So I think, again, another half-hour module on this how to get started with WebSockets in Spring is very, very feasible. It's not a... Right. I mean, we talk about modules there, and one of the things that we have just been talking about is so the Java web development course. I can only guess on how long it's going to be in total, but you know, it's it's currently looking at around fourteen to fifteen chapters. It's quite sizable, wow. yeah. and it's whether we split that into modules we or whether be. we do it as yeah. a single. Um, the the advantage, obviously, of splitting it into modules is purely that we can release module one while module two is being recorded. Yeah, definitely. And there is a logical progression, so it is structured very much as you know, look, here's where it all started. Here's the basics, mm -hmm. um, and then we start. We, we reach a point, and I'm almost there actually. I think I've got security left to record, mm -hmm. and at that point, I'm almost going to be saying. Everything from this point onwards, which includes things like JSP, to be fair, is a enhancement over and above the core. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could go and build a website with what we've learned today. Now here's a load of things that are going to make it easier. And yeah. we end up with frameworks on the end, you see. So yes. um, you know, it may be that we could, we could, if you wanted, I mean, obviously, I'm saying I've almost finished recording. Obviously, there's the whole editing and post-production process. So that doesn't mean it'll be released tomorrow. But mm -hmm. the, there's a... A possibility of making that probably two modules and maybe even three maybe move frameworks into a third module which is where I'll also cover JSF because I've promised that yeah okay well that will definitely be a separate module uh, yeah it needs to be separate modules we've since we went to the subscription business the idea was to release modules and release them more frequently and I fell horribly into the trap I don't know how it happened with microservice deployment I fell back into doing the old style massive roller coaster course with 30 chapters it should have been three separate modules it would have been better for the better for the viewers you know just yes. more palatable so i nearly fell into that trap with docker as well i thought that was going to be a single module it's actually, much better as two modules. And we were actually just talking earlier today about the fact that our NoSQL course yes. is really three different things. Yeah. It should be three modules. I love that, that course. I'm really fond of NoSQL. And that was one of the courses where, for a few of the things we hadn't used, I hadn't done anything with Neo4j, for example. No. And I really enjoyed learning about it and then presenting it. And I feel that course was a flop. and isn't loved by the viewers somehow. I mean, with no evidence for that. Um, and, well, it's interesting actually because the, and this might be why, is that when we assess the, the value of a course, we have a report that we run on our systems that looks at how popular a course is. And the way it works that out is some reasonably complicated metrics, but one of the key inputs is how many people do it and how far through it do they get? Mm -hmm. Now, somebody who wants to learn um, Mongo, for yeah, example, absolutely, might well complete the whole Mongo yeah. section, and that might be the majority of people Definitely. because that's a third of the Definitely. course. It ranks a bit more lower down. So splitting that into modules would actually tell us. Yeah, it would and it would. I mean, that. anyone looking at our site wouldn't know that we that we do Neo for J. It's just buried in in mm. this in this so, incohesive course. So that's one of the other little jobs and it's actually going to be certainly on that course, that yeah, needs splitting up. Definitely. And the other very, very big course we have is Hibernate. And I don't know if that one, I haven't looked at that course recently, but I don't know if that one is also a candidate for splitting on. I'd probably leave not. that. It's a, yeah. it's a le kind of a legacy course. It's still valuable. I mean, if you're using Hibernate or JPA, that's, that's the place to go. Um, that's, no, that one's fine. As okay. it is. 
But we'll look at splitting then NoSQL. And for yeah. those who, for those of us who are customers out there with an active subscription who haven't looked at that course, oh yeah, it, it's absolutely. I, I, yeah. So it covers lovely Mongo, course. it covers Neo4j, and Redis, and Redis. Yeah, and Redis is probably out of all the things, not that glamorous. Mongo was the one that was getting all the attention at the time. But it's actually Redis that's the um, little gem in the pack there, mm. and. Something else that I've committed to do, this was in, in conversation with a customer, is that nowhere on any of our courses has we, have we handled stateless servers. So the state of play with, for example, I keep going back to Fleetman because it's our best example, our fleet management system. Um, we demonstrate on the course what happens if you uh, kill, kill the web server, start up a new instance, everything keeps running. Well, I was a little bit crafty there because you never log into that site. There's no security on that site. So you don't have a session with that site. Right. And so what I've sort of craftily forgot to mention is that, yeah, well, you do a switch over, all of your users are instantly logged off, which is obviously not acceptable. So you need a way of getting your users' sessions off of your servers and to store them somewhere and the best way to do that is something like Redis. So that, again, is another half hour, one hour module on how to do that. It really isn't difficult. You just put a plug into Tomcat. Very simple to do, but it's something we should have in our library. Absolutely. And I mean, to be fair, you, you need, I mean, we have that on our live server because we have multiple servers providing our website and our load balancer decides which server you get. Yeah. Uh, but of course, that can change throughout the process of using our website. So we have that live today. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's absolutely something we should be covering, I agree. Yeah, and very Good. short to do. So we've, the, the, the upshot of all that is we've got a lot to do. We've got a lot <laughs> to be working on. And so I've not mentioned Docker Module 2 is well, well into production. So that will be this month, I think. Yeah, it's, it's public, promised on the site as, as this month. And that's going to push. So module one was about this is how Docker works. These are the Docker commands. Nothing complicated on it, but I hope it was a fun course to work on. In Docker module two, it's about working with multiple containers and orchestrating those, those containers. So yeah, we're going to have many, many, many containers in a production system. How do you get those onto instances? Do you put them onto one instance or? or hundreds of instances, how does all of that work? And all of that will be addressed with the follow-on course, which we're doing Docker Swarm. Docker Swarm is beautiful. It's so, just so, so this fun. will also presumably then allow you to do things like if your system is getting heavily overloaded, yeah. you can fire up additional... Absolutely, all managed so by Docker Swarm. Fantastic. Um, the, 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 the one nasty thing, actually, is that I started developing our series on microservices quite a long time ago and took the decision that we would include the Netflix stack. Netflix stack, very popular. Um, probably not used by that many organizations, but is a, a very good way of managing a microservice architecture. D things like Docker Swarm came along after that, and in many places have replaced what Netflix was doing. Right. So we end up with a situation, I, I have now, ported the Fleetman system to a fully Dockerized, containerized. Th that's why that course is well advanced. I'm a small matter of writing and presenting it, but I've got the case study done. And um, yeah, you, you can take it exactly as it is and drop all of the Netflix stuff onto the containers and it works. But actually you've got Eureka, which is a very complicated component that's doing the service registry. So every microservice registers with Eureka to say, here I am, this is my IP address this is my port and this is my name and then users consumers of that service will look up using Eureka well you can do all of that now using docker swarm right a, con a container contains a service and has a name it, it's a naming service you don't necessarily I can't really see the purpose of Eureka anymore so there's going to be a kind of an unpleasant <laughs> crunching of gears when we bring that together and I don't know how that's going to pan out yet Interesting. Well, I shall look forward to seeing that, certainly. <laughs> well, I know you've been enjoying the Docker course, so... Uh... <laughs> so, I, 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 you know, you, 
You've never said a true word. <laughs> because there's nothing I enjoy more than listening to you for hours and hours. Now, I actually haven't watched Docky yet. I'm looking forward to watching it. Yeah. Um, but because I've been working on Java Web Development, I've been reviewing some of the older stuff, which, of course, you did on Java Web Development. Oh, years ago, yeah. Fun. It needed doing. It needed it's doing. Like, I'm very pleased you're doing it. Fascinating that in, in the course you show screenshots of certain websites and how much some have changed and some haven't is fascinating eBay actually. I think was on e eBay was on an Amazon that was on there as well just the general Amazon site and do you know what it's amazing how much they haven't changed and when you yeah. take a step back and look at you know what people think of as good modern web design mm. and the two probably biggest most popular websites yeah. out there have not yeah. changed Amazon works years. And because exactly, um, yeah. it works. Yeah, yeah. And both of them work. Um, but their back ends, I can guarantee that oh. Amazon is reactive. I'm that sure. Yeah, I, yeah. Have you ever known Amazon to be down for any period of time? It just, no. it just doesn't happen. Or eBay. I mean, the same. You know, it's yeah. a very resilient site. It didn't um, used to be. eBay was originally implemented, I think, in Perl scripts, I think. Right. And they famously went to Java. They were the, they were kind of like the, um, the what, what was the Sun paid them, I think, to use yes. J2EE, so they went down the EJB route, etc., which I'm not sure how well that went, really. Um, but now, I, I don't know what they use now, but I think they might still be on Java stack, but, um, but yeah, they're never down. Their website is atrocious. It looks horrible, but and people yet, don't care. It works. And yet, fascinatingly, this isn't one that you showed or I'm showing, but PayPal, by Converse, which is the same company as eBay, I think? Not now. They're, not they're now? split now. Yeah. Well, they, they constantly redesign their site, yeah. and it's every time yeah. it's harder and harder yeah. to use. And there's one particular feature called IPN notifications that I can never find. Yeah. It take, and it's hidden somewhere, and it's really important. Crucial and business function, yeah. yeah. And it's just... But the... Yeah, so, so so great design is not everything, and I just wanted to which remind you... We're using that. as an excuse for the virtual pair program <laughs> site, yeah, which... Um, yeah, well, we, as long as it's functional and it works, and I believe it does... I think I, we might change the purple... The, the milk tray colour scheme, I think, possibly. I think for, I, uh, for those who are outside of the UK, milk tray is a I'm uh, sure very well-known well sure box of chocolates produced by Cadbury's, I think, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it must be worldwide. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Purple, anyway. Purple, I think yeah. we might be Well, Cadbury's is purple, so it's purple. Their, their colour. But anyway, it, it wasn't done with that intention. So we anyway. always promise a new topic for the next podcast in two weeks' time. So, I don't know, we, we are... Should do a bit on design patterns. It could Let's well do Ganga be. 4 design patterns. Okay. That'll be There's fun, a, I think. That will be fun. And it will, you know, give us, it'll give us something to... It should be easier than reactive, I think. <laughs> give us something to... I've got to say, Matt, I'm, I'm really impressed with six... It took six podcasts before you mentioned how much good work you do for charity. I don't know how you held back. <laughs> well, Amazing. <laughs> Well, if anyone is genuinely listening to this, I hope you've been entertained and or informed. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in two. See you in two weeks. Yes. For the next All Things Java podcast. And Richard won't like me saying this, but as always, if you have any feedback, anything you'd like us to talk about, do get in touch. And it'll go to Matt. I'm too busy with my charities to, um, to answer any of your calls. Yes. Right. We'd better sign off so we can get on with our philanthropic work. <laughs> I will uh, look forward to talking to you again in a couple of weeks, Richard. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>